and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast coming to you for the week of Friday, August 21st of the year 2020. How is it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again as we continue our terminal descent into oblivion here in this the year of our Dark Lord, 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I starting the show off on a bleak note? Come on, as if we haven't all thought that <laughs> at some point in the past five, six months. That's true. Um, yeah, and on that yeah. super bleak note, yep. I'm, the, I'm the other voice on this program, as uh, I always am. This week I am Dennis, the man who isn't religious but loves a good David and Goliath story. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, how can you love a good David and Goliath story but not be religious? That's that's where the David and Goliath story originated. I mean, yeah. You know, there's some other core issues. Well, there, some things need to be present in your <laughs> beliefs for you to be a religious person, which just aren't there for me. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. The Bible has some pretty okay archetypal stories, you know, if, even if, you know, I don't really draw a lot of inspiration from the Bible personally, I can appreciate some of the stories in them. Like the concept of David and Goliath mm-hmm. is you know, always kind of like a classic uh, <clears throat> good versus evil, like, you know, looking out for the little guy, the you know, rooting for the little guy, hoping the little guy can win over the big giant. And uh, yeah, um, I'm not going to say too much just yet because it's, it's part of the ludicrous lead off, but uh, yeah, I I would like to say that Hopefully one day soon a reckoning is going to be coming with some of these giant companies that are out there right now. Okay, good. The giant tech companies. That's thank you for clarifying. Yeah. As opposed to just a general reckoning. Just people who are over six foot eight. <laughs> they better look out. <laughs> We've got too many tall people in our midst and uh it's time we brought them down a peg. <laughs> look out, VNBA. Uh no, uh, point guards only after that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Everyone's shooting threes and that's it because no one can do layups. They're too short. Well, take it up with uh, Muggsy Bogues. <laughs> right? True enough. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he's not the norm. He's the exception, of course. He but, was. Uh, uh, and through a lot of hard work, uh, dedication and perseverance, uh, uh, he was able to fulfill his NBA dreams for a number of years and have a pretty good career. Despite the fact that he was only five foot three. Yeah, that's the uh, still impressive part. Yeah. Uh, I don't really think there's anyone that height currently. And even then, the traditionally sh- uh, smaller, shorter positions, normally point guard or shooting guard positions, uh, or where you have your John Stockton, uh, like players, your yeah. Steve Nash, like players, the ones who can just shoot from afar. Even we, like Michael Jordans and stuff, like you know, other guys who would tip, who, while over six feet tall, are still considered short. Mm-hmm. Jordan was, I believe, only six, six. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, short, certainly for the NBA. Well, compared to certainly some of the other people in the NBA. Well, compared to like guys like, you know, Shaq and like, uh, Patrick Ewing, Patrick Ewing, you know, Sean Bradley, who was, I think, seven foot one or seven foot two for the Washington Bullets, or Hakeem Olajuwon, who I think is also like what seven six or something like yeah. that. Dikembe Mutombo, yeah, he was just giants of men. Absolutely, uh, Manute Bull, uh, whose son actually is playing in the NBA now, and he's over seven feet tall, and just just see him standing there, not doing anything, but just see him standing there. His arms are ridiculously long. His wingspan is 
I don't even know what's measured at. I'm going to say 14 feet. <laughs> Seven feet in arm. But, uh, yeah, his feet, his arms go all the way down. He can just tickle his toes as he's standing there normally. No. Uh, yeah. So but, David and Goliath. Yeah. Speaking of other types of giants, though, you know, like some of these other major companies are huge. I mean, Apple just recently crossed the $2 trillion threshold of, like, valuation. They did. Uh, $2 trillion. And so that is, I believe, the market capitalization. So that's really their value uh, on Wall Street. It is yeah. the their share price multiplied by number of shares available or just uh, in circulation kind of deal. And it equals over $2 trillion because Apple's been on a crazy run of just making money. Yeah, uh, and having stock price go up for the last ever, but they're not the only one. I mean, Alphabet is way up there as well. Alphabet. You know, the parent company of Google, mm-hmm. um, Amazon, Amazon, Amazon's done crazy. Amazon also crossed the. Well, I know it was a couple of years ago they crossed the trillion dollar threshold. They, did. they were neck and neck with Apple to be the first company to cross the trillion threshold. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're close to two two trillion as well at this point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then there's Facebook. Facebook, yes. Uh, there's Netflix as well, which I, <clears throat> which I believe is the acronym commonly used for all the big, uh, tech companies is FANG. Facebook, yeah. uh, Alphabet, Apple, Netflix, and, uh, uh, and Google. And Google, yeah. Well, yeah. Google, yeah. Kind of, yeah, even though they're in there with Alphabet and stuff, but yeah, Amazon, yeah. Or, or just they don't really say Alphabet's name and it's just Google because that's what people commonly know. Yeah. Exactly. And then Microsoft's thrown in, in there as well, but hell, Tesla has, its share price has just done crazy for the last six months. Yeah. And of course, I saw an infographic from, I think it was Forbes the other day, showing how much the richest billionaires have become richer in the last five months since coronavirus started. Mm-hmm. It's, it's maddening, really. It's very maddening, considering these are not hard-earned dollars. Nope. Nope. Uh, income inequality has gotten worse during the pandemic. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, like, <laughs> and so these companies have gotten even larger. The rich people behind them even richer. Uh, Tim Cook certainly has to be on the list of uh, richest billionaires out there. He being the CEO leading Apple through these growth times. Yeah, though I I think Bezos was still top of the list. Oh, I don't think there's any taking him down. No. Uh, but Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, they still jump back up like something like $50 billion each as well, which is nothing to sneeze at for individual people. Certainly and not. And also still an unfathomable amount of money for an individual person. Just going to put that out there. Like there's no need to have that amount of money. I would like to see a modern remake of the classic 80s uh, Richard Pryor comedy, Brewster's Millions, but now make it Brewster's Billions. Or Brewster's Trillions even. like Yeah, the real challenge. How do you spend a billion dollars in 30 days Yeah, and just not buy yourself stuff? Yeah. How do you, I don't know. Oh, wait. That could be an interesting movie and just do, like, social good. Yeah, that's what you should do. Like, hey, a lot of people have student loan debt that they're suffering from. You know, there's a lot of social programs that need funding. A lot of, like, but, I mean, look at Puerto Rico. They're screwed as a country still. Oh, still, yes. Like, there's, like... Hundreds of millions of dollars of, or I would probably hundreds of billions of dollars of damage is still done to Puerto Rico. Like, these are all things where it's like, come on. I mean, at least to Bill Gates' credit, he's sort of been trying to do good with his Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, like with, uh, like recently curing malaria in Africa. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something that really kind of went unheralded. And I think it's sort of 
worthy of praise. Like, that was a big problem. And he put his money towards fixing it and then fixed it. Who knew all it took is uh, just a lot of money. Yeah, direct injections of large cash funds. Yeah. And you can cure things. And, uh, you know, these companies don't get rich by writing checks. That's no. the old joke from the Simpsons episode yeah. where Homer starts a dot com. Yeah. And then, you know, Bill Gates, quote unquote, bought him out by bringing just hired goons into his house and wrecking his office, basically. <laughs> so, so, like I said, they don't get rich by writing checks. But one of the ways they can get rich, say in the case of Apple, they can sell products such as the iPhone, uh, home computers, um, the Apple Card, their uh, payment processing system, yep. uh, credit card. Uh, they have the Apple Store. They sell their own, you know, services through it, Apple TV, TV Plus or whatnot. But, uh, but oh, Apple is not where it's at bec- just because of its products alone. No. Apple makes, I would say, most of its money actually not by doing anything really itself. It makes most of its money off of other people who have decided to use Apple's tools. That's right. So you've you've all heard of the Apple App Store, or you've heard of the concept of an App Store, if you haven't heard of the Apple App Store somehow. Mm-hmm. I think Apple's App Store was the first one to be called the App Store, so the fact that I'm calling it App Store is a little bit telling. So it's an App Store. There's a Google Play Store for an, on an Android devices. You know, there's whatever marketplaces on whatever other devices, you know, the Xbox marketplace, the uh, various things like that. So, hell, even on uh, your Windows uh, computer, what used to be called programs are now called apps. Yeah. yeah. Same thing. Same thing. This is applications. Anyways, it, these are just, you know, you know what apps are. If you don't know what apps are, you've been living under a rock for the last 10 years. And I don't know if you know how to be listening to podcasts even, so... Welcome to 2020. Thank the younger people who set you up with this. Yes, and uh, we are glad that you're listening to us, but uh, this might be a confusing podcast for you to jump into if you don't know what apps are. Um, not that that's a prerequisite to be a listener or anything, but yeah. Uh, anyways, on an app store, most of the apps are, surprise, surprise, not made by Apple. This is true. In fact, precious few are actually made and officially released by Apple. Yeah, so... What Apple has done is they've basically made an ecosystem for developers who have ideas for apps, and they've basically provided a bunch of tools and ways to use the phones, you know, devices and things in many and sundry ways. Like if you have some, you know, fitness app that tracks steps or has GPS components or whatever, like all of these things are available to you. So like, like let's say a RunKeeper type app or something where you want to track where you're running. Apple didn't make that, but Apple made it possible for them to make that by providing them a GPS and providing them an accelerometer to count steps and things like that. And, you know, to track pace and whatever. There's, you know, finance apps and stuff, not made by Apple, but made by banks and other companies and stuff to help you balance your budgets and stuff. These are, you know, Apple provides the tools, but Apple does not provide the apps. So, through doing, through providing the tools and the means to distribute these um, apps to people, App, Apple takes, I believe it's a 30% cut of any and all profits made by these apps. So if you're selling your app for $5 on the App Store, or let's just, 
let's just say $3 for the sake of argument. Mm-hmm. $1 goes to Apple and $2 goes to you because you're releasing your app for Apple devices, because you're using the GPS and things that else, whatever might be in Apple's devices. Yes. Despite the fact that these are sort of standard things across other devices, even ones not made by Apple, even if you are developing your app sort of in a multi-platform way to be developed, to be released on other platforms such as Android or the web. So anyways, keeping that thought percolating in your mind, it doesn't just stop at when you go to sell your app for the first time. Sometimes you want to provide in-app purchases. Like, let's say, oh, you know, video games have them. We've, you know, had our fair share of issue with things like microtransactions and stuff, but they're a thing. And if, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, if you're an adult and you're consenting and you have your own money, you can spend it however you want and no one should get in the way of that. Just like, you know, if if some game is offering you know, outfits for your character or something that don't really do anything, but they're still help, you know, customize your gameplay experience, fine. Usually the way that Apple and all these other companies want you to do it is to use their their mechanisms in place that hook into their app store so that any of these transactions have to go through their app store. And, you know, usually they, they put a big thing, you know, in their terms of use saying, you know, you have to go through our app store if there's any in-app purchases, blah, blah, blah. We're the payment processor. All the money has to go through us. You know, basically nothing happens in this town without us knowing. And Epic Games, we're, we're transitioning into the ludicrous laid-off now. In a very long-winded way. Very long-winded way. But Epic Games has decided, you know what? That's That sucks. Why should you get all this money? Yeah, we're glad that you made these tools and stuff for us, but you're not the only ones making phones. We just want a more consistent experience across different types of devices. Why can't we just sell our own stuff through our own game? We can provide our own payment processor. There's really nothing stopping us technologically from doing this. So they basically opened up in-app purchases that you know go around Apple's mechanisms inside Fortnite. And Apple didn't like it. So Apple removed Fortnite from the App Store. Yes, perhaps you have heard of this kerfuffle. Perhaps uh, this was brought to your attention. Uh, you have someone in your household, in your life, in your circle who plays Fortnite, and you have heard of this tangentially. Uh, the news really came down uh, at the tail end of last week after we had all re- kind of already done our episode for last week. And so, of, of course, the news isn't going to end over the weekend, and it started again at the start of this week. Uh, Apple retaliating, not just with the removal of Fortnite. The news coming down on Monday that Apple has sent notice to Epic Games that they will remove the company's access from all iOS and Mac development tools effective August 28th. So essentially cutting off Epic Games from being an approved developer for the Mac ecosystem. Yeah. Now, in response, Epic Games filed a uh, court injunction seeking, uh, I guess, the court's ability and permission to overturn that and stop Apple from banning them from being able to develop for those platforms. That is going to be litigated in front of the courts. 
by some very, very, very expensive lawyers. Uh, there will be law firms that will make good amounts of money off this. Yep. And this is where we are. We have Epic Games picking a fight with Apple. This is really what the, uh, the TLDR of this all amounts to. Yeah. This Epic Games is the David and Apple is the Goliath. Now, it's interesting that we are portraying in this example, Epic Games as the David, considering they are a company that was recently evaluated as being worth around $17.5 billion. Yeah. That's not a small company. No, that's a huge company by any sort of measure. But they are the David against Apple (laughs) because Apple's worth $2 trillion. (laughs) That's orders of magnitude, like orders of magnitude upon orders of magnitude more. Like... $17 $17 billion is already not an easy number to conceptualize as one person. Mm-hmm. And the the gap between $17 billion and $2 trillion is just as unfathomable. You might as well be saying, oh, that's a million dollars and $10 million to most people, which at the very least, a million dollars is sort of like something you can conceptualize, like, Here's what I could buy with a million dollars. What can you buy with 17 billion? What can you buy with a trillion? What can you buy with two trillion? Like, that's insane. Nothing is off limits at those points. No. Like, that's greater than, you know, the GDP of most countries in the world. I think every country in the world doesn't have a GDP that big. Uh, probably outside the top five, like top five, ten. Like, like, that's insane. It truly is. And it's a, a ridiculous number that is only increasing, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Apple, as a company, shows no signs of slowing down in terms of revenue, in terms of share price, anything of that nature. Uh, there's talk the company might do a stock split, so that will bring down the list price of the shares, but it's the same idea. Yeah. So... Uh, so Apple is, is only ever going to get larger in this case, short of government intervention to break them up. Yeah. Which I think there's talks of, like, there is an antitrust thing happening right now, basically generally against Fang, as it were, Mm -hmm. but good luck getting anything through on that front, because I mean, all of these massive companies are obviously have a lot of lobbyists at their disposal and good luck. And also the pace of government is not one that uh, allows for change uh, quickly. No. At all. No. If ever. If ever. Considering how fast technology moves, it's a weird thing where it's like government is not really compatible with technology. No, and perhaps uh, the courts might be a bit more uh, faster method for Epic Games to achieve their goal of changing these terms and changing the landscapes that uh, these companies such as Apple and Google, we haven't really mentioned Google in this too much, but they are a part of this uh, kerfuffle that Epic Games has launched. Epic Games is picking a fight with Google just as much, although they made it very clear from their big publicity to do last week, Epic Games did that (sighs) Apple is their target. Oh yeah. Um, There's a lot of you listening well, maybe there's not a lot of you listening that are too young to remember, but um, if you remember, in the early 90s, 
I mean, I barely remember it, but I do remember it. But you can YouTube it anyways. Apple ran a big ad campaign that was basically like a modern art kind of, I think it was one of those weird things where it was a parody of 1984 and, you know, someone throwing a hammer at a screen and, you know, all the gray people basically looking at the screen exploding and like basically being struck out of the brainwash thing. I think it was the start of the Think Different campaign. No, it was earlier than that. It was the, uh, it was an ad for the Apple II. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. we're talking mid eighties. Mid eighties, mid eighties. Yes. It was in 1984, I think. Probably. Yes, it was. Yeah. So I wouldn't have remembered it, but I do remember seeing it. And, you know, obviously it was something that people referenced for years after, but I think it was also one of the first big Super Bowl commercials. Yeah. It was, it's, it's an iconic commercial. It's a, it's an old iconic commercial at this point, but yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's kind of unmistakable what it is once you see it. You know, like, oh yeah, that's that, that's where that came from. And it was Apple that did it. But, uh, Epic did their own parody of that commercial using Fortnite characters, you know, and using the Unreal Engine and, you know, 3D animated and looked really nice and stuff. But they put a video out of that when this all started to kind of go down and people were like, oh, what's going to happen now? And now this has been happening. So this is the shit hitting the fan and I'm here for it. So this is clearly a coordinated campaign on Epic Games part. Oh, absolutely. Like the, the, the match that started all this, the spark that uh, began this uh, legal fire was the fact that uh, Epic Games pushed out an update that kind of had a new option for paying for in-game purchases buying V-Bucks in Fortnite so you could pay through the normal Apple Store means or Google Store means, Google Play Store means, or you could just pay directly your monies to Epic Games for a lower price than what you would for paying through the Apple Store or Google Play Store. And that got a lot of attention because, hey, that's, obviously a lot of people know, you're circumventing Apple and Google's terms of service there. Yeah. And Epic Games didn't care and did it anyway. And they were quickly shut down, removed, uh, received some stern letters and phone calls from legal representation on Apple's part, Google's part saying, what the sweet hell are you doing? Yeah. Or people in the developer relations department. Probably. Or it might have just straight up been the legal department from one company going to the legal department of the other going, yeah, no. Yeah, you know what? This is big enough that it would just be on the legal level. Yeah. Like, it was like, we're pulling you, we're, we're taking your keys away. No. And then that uh, led to Epic Games launching its free Fortnite campaign, hashtag free Fortnite, to try and generate public sentiment on its side as they try and pick a fight with Apple to have Apple stop taking this 30% cut from all in-game transactions. Everywhere. Maybe not 30. Not saying that they can't take a cut, but a lesser cut. Yeah. 30% is a lot. If you are an indie developer just trying to do something, I mean, you, you have basically two options. Try to sell your app for, you know, whatever, like less than $10 and basically give three of it to Apple even though you're the one that put all the work in, 
I mean, arguably, yeah, they put all the work into developing the device, developing the operating system and all these, the tool chain and stuff, but like, they're a massive team of people with basically an infinite budget to work with. You're one person that has to buy all the things yourself and buy into the developer program and buy a phone and, you know, do this. You have all this money you have to spend to learn how to code apps and learn how to develop things. Mm -hmm. Like there's all this stuff that goes into being a small indie developer, not even of games, just of apps and stuff in general. Like you can either put a game out or your app out for some amount of money and hope that, you know, people will buy it. And then if people buy it, get 60% of or 70% of your, you know, the money that you said you're selling it for, or you can put it out for free and riddle it with ads and then really hope that people stick with it long enough for you to make some cash off of it. Those are your two options. There aren't really good options. No, there. they're like, they're not, there's, there's palatable options, but there's not a good option. No, like, and that's where you're sort of at. So the 30% is a lot. And yeah, which is why, if you remember, like Epic Games seems to be trying to do as much as they can to shake up the entire software development industry basically right now, which is awesome, and I'm all for it. Uh, certainly, they've uh, taken their shots and uh, done their part to try and shake up the PC game storefront business, uh, taking direct aim at Valve and the Steam platform. But even more generally, their licensing model for Unreal Engine 5 is... Well, unreal. <laughs> like, just to not be, you know, too coy about it or anything, it's crazy. Like, it's one of the most generous terms you can get for licensing of software. Yeah, what was it? Basically free for up to a million dollars in revenue? And I think after that, it's 5%. Yeah, which is huge. If you're an indie developer, like, let's say you're, you put out, oh, I don't know, something like Fortnite. Like, wouldn't you prefer to you know, like if you're just a small team of like two or three people, wouldn't you prefer to just kind of be squared away first, like get your company kind of really going? Like once you've hit your first million dollars in sales, oh, good, we have a strong base now. Now we can start paying some money when we, you know, make more money here. So now, like that's a good base. It is. And even after that point, when you have like say a million squared away, uh, as a good stable foundation, hopefully it's a good stable foundation for that uh, uh, operation and those people involved. You're not paying out that much more. No, it's I mean, really it's more than nothing, but it's only five percent. Yeah, and even then, like the the tool chain is very inexpensive, if not free, from what I recall. So, like, and that's just development using the Unreal Engine. If you then go to publish the terms of service for publishing on the Epic Game Store are also very friendly. Yeah. Considerably more friendly than the terms that still exist on the Steam storefront. Yeah. Valve has not really changed those or come down from those. I think it's, what, 30% as well? I think it is 30%, yeah. For some reason, that's an accepted industry-wide standard of, that's my cut, 30%, good day. Yeah. Whereas Epic Games... I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was way lower. I think 12. Yeah. I think 12. And if you go through one of their, uh, one of their arms, if you're an indie publisher, you could 
be financed for your game. And then they just take a cut of profits after uh, a certain point. But you will be paid and kept whole as you develop your project. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. It is. It's angel investing. Yeah. From a, a, from an existing game company. Yeah. Or software company. Yeah. One that just wants to see the industry, at least, I mean, I don't know if they actually do, but from the outside looking in, it sure looks like they want to see the industry become a better industry. And they're being aggressive about it. Yeah. Like, whereas, you know, a company like Apple or Google or Facebook or whatever would have been more aggressive about basically trying to make as much profit for themselves as possible Mm -hmm. at any cost. They're being aggressive about equality and being fair. And it seems to be working for them. It certainly hasn't hurt them yet. Uh, we shall see what the, well, what the outcome of this crazy case is going to be. Certainly. Uh, as I'm not entirely sure it will go in their favor. No. If not going in their favor, I'm sure it was a calculus. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because, you know. They have a flow chart for that in their legal department walls. Yeah. It's like, well, when that happens, we're just not on iOS devices anymore. We're just not on any phones anymore. We're not on any tablets. Sorry, people. We tried, but they won't let us be on these things now. Well, if you want to play Fortnite, you have to play it on one of these other ways. And you know what? It's free through the Epic Game Store. Free through the Epic Game Store. Oh, and these other uh, platforms like the Epic Game Store, perhaps on your Xbox or your other standard game console, the in-game transactions may be a bit more friendly to Epic Games. Yeah. It's like, don't worry, we're doing just fine. People want to play our game still. Is that one of the uh, the end games for Epic in all this? Is they drive more people to to uh, to more to uh, platforms that have more friendly terms for in app purchases, or they base just basically raise more awareness about like, hey, all these devices that you're carrying around, they're not made by companies that like sunshine and rainbows. They're big evil companies. And we don't want to stand for it anymore. And, and credit to them. They, they are doing the work to try and affect change. And when I said just a moment ago that they are aggressive, I think it was only last fall that we were talking about the changes to their uh, engine, like the licensing details for Unreal Engine. Yeah. And that was after a couple months, uh, or sorry, a couple months prior to that, they had, so basically a year ago when Epic Games announced their changes to the royalty structure for the Epic Game Store. Yeah. So within about a year, Epic Games is now fighting its third front of trying to change and affect change for a more consumer-friendly environment, a more developer-friendly environment. Yep. In the software development universe. Yeah. Which is great. And they are now evaluated as a $17.5 billion company. Sorry, 17.3, but shut up. 17 yeah. and a half. 17 and a half. Close enough. Yeah. And Tim Sweeney still has majority control of the company. And they're still a privately held company. Yeah. That's... None of this happens if they're publicly traded. Yeah. That, no, and I think that's also another calculated move on their part. I don't think they want to go public. Because when you go public, you lose your soul. This is true. Mind you, Valve never went public and they lost their soul as well. So I don't know. 
they realized that they could just get 30% of all uh, transactions on the Steam storefront, so why do anything? That's that's true. That's very fair. <laughs> like, their soul was filled with money, so... Yeah. You either lose it or you fill it with money. Yeah. It's empty or filled with money, or there's no in-between state. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be... I mean, it's going to be a protracted fight. Oh, absolutely. This is not going to be something that ends quickly. No. Even if uh, Apple does come th- follow through and cut off all access uh, that Epic has to dev tools and publishing tools for iOS and Mac uh, ecosystems, it d- doesn't matter. Uh, whatever this initial injunction ruling is, Epic is going to appeal. Pending that, Apple is going to appeal. There will be appeals out the yin-yang. There will be appeals... Upon appeals, upon appeals, upon banana peels. Yes. How far it goes, who the hell knows, but it's just going to keep going and going for years. Several years. Yeah. And lawyers are going to continue to get rich off off of it. Uh, There will be third and fourth generations that will have (laughs) their college paid for from this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, well, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully Epic Games has a plan here because being a martyr is cool and all, but like, I don't, I don't know if they want to wait a thousand years for them to become the dominant religion. A thousand years <laughs> for bringing it back to the David and Goliath. Certainly, certainly. So, uh, we shall see how this all plays out. We're going to watch with, uh, with much interest. We won't be holding our breath because we don't have that kind of time. We'll be dead before that happens. <laughs> I mean, we can only hold our breath for so long here. Yeah. Even the craziest people, like the world's, you know, deepest freedivers can only hold it for so many minutes. Yeah, before, you know, brain damage and stuff start happening. Like, that's, uh, yeah. So good on Epic Games for doing this. I don't know how much uh, of an impact the uh, public campaign is going to be if uh, really massive amounts of people sending out tweets that uh, use the hashtag free Fortnite is going to sway Apple in their decision-making at all. Oh, no, it's not. It, it's a nice PR stunt. Yeah. And the, the parody video of the Apple commercial was... It was really good. It was really good. It's it's damning in app, on Apple that you had such this well-known mark, this well-known image and commercial just being used against you for you now being the big evil monopoly company. Yeah. Instead of being the young upstart. Yeah, all it takes is 36 years and, uh, <laughs> and trillion dollars. Who knew? <laughs> but hey, speaking of big evil companies, there's yeah. more than just one. As we spoke, uh, we kind of listed off companies in the FANG. Again, FANG being uh, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, and Google. Microsoft thrown in there uh, as an honorary FANG member as well. Sometimes Tesla seems so, to be kind of thrown in there. Tesla is going to be thrown in there at times as well because they're like the new hot tech company on the block who just has done, whose share price has just done gonzo numbers in the past four months, really, if not more. Yeah. It's, I think now, eighteen, nineteen hundred dollars $1,900 for one share. Yeah, that's that's up there. Which is Crazy bananas. So if you got in at uh, a good price, good on you. If you didn't, you're shit out of luck. Because mm-hmm. it is way too expensive to buy for the common person now. So nevertheless, but uh, a name I did mention in there is Facebook. Uh, they are no less evil than no. any of the other ones. And perhaps m- more evil than others? 
I would say Facebook and Google are arguably the most evil ones out there right now. Well, uh, I don't know. They're all pretty evil. Like the, the naked for, breed. For, the na- they're they're all they're all evil for different reasons, and maybe they're all equally evil for different reasons. But they're all different reasons. The Facebook reason is because of like just the the sheer ickiness of how they know everything about you, and how they know like all of your activity. Basically, I mean, Google does as well, but at least they don't really have the social network aspect of it mapped out. Like at least Facebook directly connects you to other people so they can figure out like what type of a person you are based on literally what type of people you associate with and what type of things you publicly like on your, or not publicly, but like willingly connect yourself to on your page and Mm -hmm. the type of things you post to their platform and all this stuff. Google, you know, they have other information like your search history and all this other stuff. And, and all of these companies have tracking that they put on your computer in case you weren't aware, which is why I would recommend using a browser like Brave or at least Firefox or something like all these companies put tracking cookies on your, on your browser. And those tracking cookies basically send beacons everywhere. No matter where you're going, it's just like, like a lot of websites you know, benefit from putting Facebook information on their website just for marketing purposes and stuff. And Facebook, Google, whatever, just end up taking that information and they can build their own profile on you. And I believe they call it a marketing persona for you and they can single you out. So this is why, you know, that whole thing that happened in Europe last year with GDPR and all that stuff was such a big deal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, might want to consider getting, you know, a more privacy-focused browser. We're not doing an ad right now or anything. I'm just kind of saying as someone that works in the industry, I'm saying that Brave is a good browser and you should probably use it. Fairly uh, fairly new to the uh, browser game. Yeah, like within the last year or so, but it was like people from the Mozilla Foundation and a bunch of other, like, more open-sourcey kind of tech companies just kind of getting together and going, you know what, we care about privacy. There's some weird side thing of like cryptocurrency that's sort of built into it as well that I don't fully understand, but you can turn that off and I pretty much haven't turned that off. That's well. how they make their money. Probably. Yeah. Brave coin. It's, uh, yeah, it actually is called like brave attention tokens. I think they're called anyways. Like it's more the sites that you visit the most are eligible for more attention tokens or something. Anyways, it's confusing. I don't, I didn't really read into it too much, but I don't care that much. All I care about is the fact that they basically stopped tracking. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, Facebook, they have an icky amount of information on you. Mm-hmm. They, like if you have a Facebook account, whatever, ev- most people do. It's just a thing. You know, we, I try not to post stuff on Facebook, anything like I don't try to post pictures or anything. Don't really do much other than like like whatever stupid memes and crap on there anyway. So it's not really useful information they have on me. But yeah, even still, they have a, a fairly robust profile of you. Yeah, which because is, of years worth of information. Oh yeah, and all those tracking pixels and stuff like they were cumulative over time. Like you'd be surprised what Facebook has on you, but uh, they're icky for that reason. You know, whereas Amazon might be icky for like some of their standards and practices of how they treat their employees. Google's also icky for other, you know, data retention reasons and, you know, 
that just leaves Netflix, which is just kind of a, they're a content company. They're a content company and whatever. They, content can go away to whim. Anyways, <laughs> we're, we're talking about Facebook now because there's, uh, you know how Facebook bought Oculus, much to the chagrin of a lot of people who were part of this crowdfunding thing when it first came out, when the Rift was sort of like the new hotness. And mm-hmm. A couple sort of, of years ago. Yeah, and it just sort of like got people going, holy crap, VR can be a real thing, finally, that's not total garbage. And it kind of sparked the whole mini VR revolution that hasn't, I mean, it's it's around, it's not like the big major game changer like I think a lot of people want it to be, but it's around and it's pretty good. It's got its place. It uh, hasn't gone away yet. Yeah. Uh, the major companies who have uh, put time and energy and investment into it haven't backed out from that yet. Yeah. Sony's still developing. I think they're working on the next-gen PSVR. Uh, Facebook is still working on Oculus. HTC is working on all its headsets still with with Valve. So uh, the companies are still in there. They're trying to refine, tweak, make them better, make them more robust, attract more users. But Oculus, I think, still is probably one of the, those top-of-mind names when it comes to VR headsets. Yeah, though um, in the coming uh, weeks and months, specifically starting January 1st, uh, 2023... Um, so Oculus have their own account system. I guess it must've been a leftover thing from before the Facebook days, Mm -hmm. but like if you had an Oculus account, I mean, now when you buy an Oculus, it's, I think you can sign up for either an Oculus or a Facebook account, but eventually they, they want you to try to link the two. They're going to be making that linking mandatory. So, uh, right away, I think in October this year, anyone uh, using an Oculus device for the first time will have to have a Facebook account and you'll have to log in using that Facebook account. And then um, by that date I mentioned before, January 1st of 2023, the existing Oculus accounts are going to be shut down if you don't migrate over to a Facebook account. So that might be a thing to keep in mind if you are thinking of dipping your toes into the VR world that if you're looking at oculus and you're maybe of the mind where you like do i need a facebook account i mean a lot of us have facebook accounts but i'm kind of done with linking it to everything Mm -hmm. so if you're of that mind where you don't like that maybe oculus isn't for you beware uh, if you have an Oculus uh, account already and know of this, uh, know that it's coming. Um, Try to sell your Oculus and get a PlayStation VR or one of the other ones, the Vive VR. I don't remember all the different HTC Vive. HT, yeah. uh, there's uh, maybe one or two others, but uh, I believe Samsung has uh, maybe some in there as well. But nevertheless, uh, there are other options if you are interested in VR headsets that don't require you to give over more of your information to a big, evil tech company that just deals in your information, your personal details. And this just feels very icky to me. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing for Facebook to have all the information of whatever you type uh, into your account. I believe you've mentioned previously on the show when we speak, you know, speak of the ickiness that is Facebook, they record all your keystrokes. Yeah, uh, Um. It's not, I mean, there's ways to do it just in your web browser so it's like local to your system, but from what I understand, 
it might not still be that point. I haven't really dug in too much these days, but everything you type in a comment box or in, you know, basically anywhere in Facebook, they, even if you don't click send or click, you know, whatever, they have a record of it. They have a record that you typed a thing in, what it was, and they have a record of you deleting it even, which is why I think at some point years ago, it was kind of revealed that, or it was speculated on that they might have been doing some sort of weird psychological profiling of people and that it would have actually, you know, it's one of those super unethical things that like, of course you don't know about it, but you know, it's like an interesting thought experiment of like the what if of like, yeah, we haven't had that degree of, you know, what goes on in someone's head yet. Like all we've had was basically like what we can get people to tell us. We don't know what's actually in like their thoughts. That is the closest we have to someone's inner thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like if someone types a whole thing up and goes, ah, never mind, then just like because I'm I'm sure we've all been in that situation before where you see someone post something ridiculous and you you post a big response. You're like, I don't. This is why I disagree. Blah 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 blah. And then you go, you know what? I don't want to get in a fight with this person. I don't care that much. Then you delete the whole thing. Or maybe uh, something co- you know uh, causes you to flash to anger. You type yeah. out this big long thing. You calm down by the end of it and realize it's not worth it. Yeah. Delete it all. Yeah. Or just uh, whatever you were typing was just replete with uh, errors, misspellings, poor grammar, that kind of thing. Uh, then Facebook records your dum dum and you're filed accordingly. <laughs> yes. Hopefully. Or you're drunk. Yeah. Or you're drunk. But yeah. Um, that's an icky thing. Very icky. Uh, very concerning, but that's one thing. Of course, they will record whatever you click on as well. Yeah. Uh, anything you like, any sort of article you click to read, uh, you'll then get, you know, similar suggested links uh, or articles to read in the future after that point. And also, if other websites you frequent, like let's say you're checking out, you know, the AV Club or whatever else, whatever other kind of like content type website, like a Gawker site or something like that, whatever, if they have Facebook share buttons in there, that's now connected to the Facebook domain. If you had a Facebook tracking pixel, that's connected to that as well. So now Facebook knows you've been to that website. Okay. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. So which is why a lot of these, which is why I'm recommending a browser like Brave or something, which basically puts that in a little box and goes, no, no, you don't get to be outside of this box, Facebook. You exist inside the Facebook box. Just like this website exists inside this other website box. And the boxes don't get to see each other. That's good. Yeah, that's what I prefer. It's like, I don't want you knowing what other, I mean, just for stupid whatever reasons. Like, I don't want you knowing what recipes I'm looking at or anything right now. I don't want a bunch of weird suggestions on Amazon for like, oh, because I made a couple of vegetarian dishes. What, you think I'm a vegan now? Like, no, I don't need this. Like, come on. Like, don't don't jump the gun here. Don't. I don't need your influence here. I looked up one sourdough recipe and now just my whole feed is all bread recipes. Yeah. Or like think pieces on why this type of bread's better or like weird things to get you start thinking. I don't know. Like this is maybe a little bit conspiracy theory tinfoil hat at this point now, but sometimes I notice that I see things posted that, you know, maybe purposely drive me to anger. Like I'm not super okay with people who, you know, promote like homeopathy and stuff like that. And oftentimes a lot of those opinions kind of drive in with like, you know, 
more like wanting to support more organic things as opposed to like GMOs or whatever. Like I understand certain GMOs are actually evil for like a societal reason. Like Monsanto is a terrible company or I should say Bayer is a terrible company mm-hmm. because they now own everything. But like I, I get it from that standpoint, but yeah, like functionally wise, it's not any worse for you. Like eating a bigger apple that's more genetically modified is not going to kill you any worse than a regular apple's not. Like, come on. Anyways, like, all that aside, like, sometimes I notice, like, if you're searching, like, if you're just sort of like, I'm, I have a cursory interest in, like, maybe trying some, I don't know, vegetarian cooking. Then you'll notice, like, some weird hippie sources start coming up, and are they actually trying to drive me away because they also know that I'm, like, more of a skeptic or something? It's like, I, like, I know that we should all be more vegetarian generally. I'm not saying to be all vegetarian, but like generally we should be more vegetarian because it's like better for the planet to like not eat so much meat all the time. But why are you sending me all this hippie crap now? Like what am I, like I don't need to like conflate this with like better living through organic this and that. It's just like, no, there's no scientific basis for any of this stuff. And they probably know I'm doing this, so I'm just looking at this getting mad. Are you trying to dissuade me from doing this? So I go back to just eating, like, I want to eat meat and do this <laughs> and that now. Like, And then you start seeing ads for your local uh, butcher, your local uh, uh, barbecue joint or whatever, yeah. or just meat-based uh, recipes in your feed as well. Yeah, so, like, just, th- like, think a layer further than, like, like, yeah, of course your devices are listening to you, which is why, like, you might be talking to you know, your significant other or a friend or whatever about some sort of thing. And then all of a sudden you start seeing things about that thing in your news feeds and whatnot, like ads for those types of things. Like I took a picture for some, of some funny name brand that I saw in some houseware store of like a toaster. I think the brand name was Smeg and I thought it was funny, but then, you know, it was just a picture of it and I sent it to her, my girlfriend and Later, like, I didn't Google search this or anything. And then later on, I saw a bunch of ads for this specific brand in Facebook. I was like, that's creepy. That's really creepy. So it analyzed the picture. Yeah, my phone, like, like this was my camera app on my phone <laughs> that is not really supposed to be connected to anything. So I guess it is connected to everything. Huh. Sure is. Yeah. Yep. So to take that uh, one step further, the Oculus VR headsets connecting to directly to your Facebook account, mandatory starting January 1st, 2023. And this is icky to me because then it's, uh, it's just more directly connecting uh, Facebook, not to your cl- web clicks, not to your keystrokes, but directly to your eye movement. Yeah. What you're looking at, what catches your attention as you dart around uh, the screens in the VR headset. Yeah. That's more biometric information. They can have more detailed information, what catches your attention, beyond just words, directly knowing what images you are looking at and catch your attention, beyond just what you click on, what you like, what you favorite. And not just all of that, but how your attention is drawn to them. True, too. Like, that, I think, is also the other part that might be overlooked. Like, there is also value in that, because then that can then maybe help devise new ways of marketing because that's more information that we've never really had before. Like we know 
general theories of like when you're looking at a 2D piece of advertising, like, okay, well, there, you have to use negative space. You need to have like certain number of fonts. You need to have stuff that looks a certain way balanced with other pictures that look a certain way just to be able to effectively draw the eye from one place to the place you want it to go. And selecting certain colors, avoiding others. Yeah, of course. So you, you have that, but how does that work in the real world? Like you might have like a poster in a bus shelter and the poster itself, like, yeah, we have all the theories sewn up on how, what, you know, what happens when you look at the poster, but how did the person's, you know, sightline find the poster in the first place? Mm. So that's, that's the type of stuff now that I would imagine that they will have, which would just basically put them that much further ahead of other people in terms of marketing and value and stuff. And it's, it's real icky. It sure is real icky. So the first wave would be the product placement in games released for the Oculus uh, VR devices. Uh, those will be the, I guess, uh, testing grounds. And then everything will just spin out of there. And Facebook will become the biggest, most evil ad-based tech company going. Will become? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're already top four, which is pretty, pretty impressive. If that's the word you want to use to, uh, for this, but yeah. I can't think of a better one, uh, here in this, uh, the year of our Dark Lord, uh, because, well, now we're just in the hellscape. We are through the looking glass into the hellscape. We're actually living in the dystopian future now, and it happened so, so gradually that we didn't really notice it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a couple episodes of Black Mirror that have, uh, covered these grounds before. Yeah. And taking it further. So we can use those uh, and figure out what to expect. <laughs> yeah. Unsettling? Kind of. Welcome to reality. Yeah, welcome to reality. <laughs> but let's talk about a tech company that uh, is, is small and uh, doing something, you know, kind of good, kind of interesting. That at least catches our attention. Yeah. Um, they're a company that have been around for a while. I remember when I first saw their products, I kind of laughed because of how ludicrously expensive they seemed. But they are genuinely cool. The company we're speaking of is Analog. And they basically, their whole MO is making from the ground up hardware redesigns of classic game consoles using modern chipsets and stuff that accept old cartridges. So... I think their first one was the Analog NT. Yes, their version of the uh, NES. Yeah, and then I think they put out, what, a Super Nintendo or a Sega Master System one next or something like that? I think they've done both. Yeah. Uh, in what sequential order, I don't know, but the, I believe they, in their product offerings, they do have a, a version of a Super Nintendo and a version of a Sega, Sega Genesis, Sega Mega Drive, yeah. 16-bit consoles. But I know we spoke of last year the announcement that they were working on a new foray, a new device for their product offerings called the Analog Pocket. Uh, and we hadn't really heard about it since the initial announcement. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we got more information when Analog put out a press release that gave more details, announced a pre-order window, and also announced a delay. So the initial time frame for the Analog Pocket to be released was later this year. That is, of course, not going to happen, in no small part, I'm sure, because of the COVIDs. 
affecting everything, understandable. The new release window for the analog pocket is May 2021. If you were Johnny on the spot, and if this little news item came across your wire in time, then you would have been able to pre-order the analog pocket uh, when the pre-orders open back on August 3rd. But I say Johnny on the spot because you had to be Johnny on the spot. The pre-order amount sold out in 15 minutes. Yeah. So if you did not get one, I don't know what the quantity number was, but good good luck. It, I'm sure, was a small amount. Because the this is kind of a, a niche boutique uh, company. Yeah. But maybe this device is not as niche and boutique as they thought it would be. And perhaps the demand they saw from that uh, pre-order window led them to believe that there might be more and they might... Uh, rev up their production of this because the analog pocket from what we know looks really awesome it is a retro console that plays a whole bunch of your old uh game boy games game boy advance basically handheld games your handheld console games so it's it looks like a modern game boy it is done by i believe some people who were uh concept artists for the playstation 4 now, in the new information, it, there were some slight industrial design changes. Uh, some of the buttons were moved around. It still looks very nice. It's a sleeker Game Boy. Uh, looks more like like it could be a uh, Samsung device or some sort of smartphone, very modern technological device. Yeah, very small bevel, very sleek, nice-looking screen. I believe the screen is a 1600 by 40, 1440 resolution, which is... 10 times the resolution of the original Game Boy. So, and it will accept, I believe, natively accept classic Game Boy uh, games into the back slot on it so you can see what they look like in their two-color, very low-res glory on a really wicked screen, which, understandably, they'll only look so good. There were limitations of the hardware at the time, but this screen is going to make them look as good as they can, and it's going to... uh, also have an original display mode that will replicate your original Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance screen as it was back in the day, according to the press release, quote, quarks and all. But the other big announcement with this analog pocket is that it's going to have a dock that is going to function function much like the Switch uh, dock does for your TV. So you're going to plug in your analog pocket into this, this device, has an HDMI output to your TV, uh, also has a USB-C connector port that's recessed, that's going to give extra stability, and will be able to support up to four controllers across Bluetooth, 2.4G, and USB, so you'll finally be able to play some of those multiplayer Legend of Zelda games for Game Boy. Yeah, because no one had all the connections necessary, because the connectors were always so hard to find and or expensive. Rare was the person who had one of those connector cables. Yeah. To find four people in the same circle who all had was like finding a unicorn. It just uh, did not exist in the wild. No. But also, this thing is really cool uh, because it's coming out with new MIDI and analog sync cables for for use with uh, what they're calling NanoLoop, which is uh, the music creation software that comes bundled with this thing, I guess. Yeah, it comes bundled with uh, music creation software. Yeah, so it's built into this pocket device, and cables can be used to bring your chiptune creations onto a Mac, PC, or other music hardware. Um, but yeah, it's 
the other cool thing is that it's not just, you know, the tools aren't just there for creating music. You can also create games with some of the stuff built into this as well. They've partnered with GB Studio to allow users to create their own retro-style games, retro-style new games for this console. Uh, so it's going to be a dev tool. Yeah, it's some dev tool where it gives you a drag-and-drop interface that allows game development with no coding experience, and these created games can be played on the pocket from an SD card, and Analog themselves are launching an FPGA developer program to support this, of which I don't really know what that means, but uh, it's some sort of developer program. It sounds sounds good. So that's pretty awesome. So it's called the Analog Pocket. We've mentioned the the Game Boy games it can play. It'll recreate them, and uh, given all that, uh, can fully understand if you think this is just exclusively going to be for classic Game Boy games. Uh, from the original series, Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance. And out of the box, yes, it will be for that. But Analog is also going to be releasing a series of accessories that will allow you, the user, to uh, basically take some of these adapters and use the Analog Pocket to play your... Maybe you have Game Gear games. Maybe you have Neo Geo Pocket games. Maybe you have Atari Lynx games. <laughs> This will have a series of adapters and connectors, so you can play all of those onto your analog pocket and then output them onto your big screen TV. Yeah, so you don't have to wrench your neck playing them anymore. Because you're an adult and you have a big TV and you have a nice comfy living room and a couch and stuff to sit on to play them. And your neck can't really take that much more wrenching given how, given how much you do of it with your smartphone already. Yeah. You've got smartphone neck and shoulder hunch going on, so let's try and alleviate that as best we can. Yeah. So this, all in all, looks like a really awesome device. Yeah, too bad the pre-order sold out so fast, because, you know, I'd consider this. I would, too. The only sticking point I have is price point not given. Yeah, that's not great. So, and one thing I have learned from looking at the analog devices previously... They're expensive. They are expensive. Now, you're you are paying for quality. These yeah. are good quality, uh, very capable machines. And all the reviews I've read of all these analog devices are, they're solid as hell. Like, they're machined out of, like, high-quality metal, and, like, they don't feel insignificant when you pick them up. Like, you know, you pick up some electronics and they feel like cheap plastic garbage, not the analog devices. They have heft to them. Like, they have weight, and they're like, they don't feel like they're going to fall apart, which is something you want. Absolutely. And given the marketplace out there, there's a number of uh, retro console machines or uh, various machines that can play your old game collection or perhaps are emulators for old systems. I'm thinking of the uh, AT Games Sega Genesis uh, uh, retro console that was maligned, and then Sega had to step in and say, no, no, we're making our own because you guys drop the ball so much. Yeah. So there's just a lot of crap out there in the retro console uh, marketplace these days. Yeah, exactly. Analog is is a beacon uh, of high-quality, premium uh, products. Pay accordingly, but you get accordingly. Yeah, of course. So this Analog Pocket has me very intrigued. If there's another pre-order window... Uh, Dennis and I will look into it and let you know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> and report back. We'll report back, see if we've managed to stick ourselves a pre-order or two. And uh, if there's still room for pre-orders, we might tell you about it after the fact. 
Yes. Is that devious? Is that underhanded? Well, it's a dog-eat-dog world. So. Yeah, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, kid. We can't be looking out for everyone, but I'm, I'm the number one. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep looking out for number one. Man, see? I don't know what accent I was doing. I was trying to do some sort of, like, 1940s noir, but it shifted into almost like a... Prospector? Prospector, so I don't know. Very Southern. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, don't know how many Southern uh, prospectors were in film noir, but... Uh, not enough. Uh, you need to rewrite the book on it, then. <laughs> you and you alone need to rewrite the book. Yes. Uh, speaking of the year 2021, if we get there, uh, we're closer to it now than uh, we were at the start of the year. <laughs> We've come. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thank you, Time, for marching in that linear fashion. Yep. It's good like that. So if we get to 2021, we're so close now. We're in the latter part of this uh, dark year. So if we get there and escape all this, 2021 is just going to be uh, full of sunshines, rainbows, and puppies everywhere. Uh, perhaps fountains of chocolates will just uh, fill everyone's playgrounds and streets will be paved with gold. Yeah. Which, of course, will be a bitch for breaking, but... <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, uh, we have just uh, some quick details on two very interesting... Uh, very popular indie games that are set to really uh, receive some updated editions, anniversary editions, deluxe editions, premium editions. I uh, term them however you will, but they're getting new editions, not the band, but the games are getting new editions in 2021. So the first one is a new edition that has been worked on since 2018, but the developers of it over at Galactic Cafe and Crows, Crows, Crows uh, apparently just keep having good ideas and they keep having to push it back, push it back, push it back. So what these two studios are working on is a deluxe edition, or sorry, an ultra deluxe edition. This is the like the fancy car wash, the ultra <laughs> deluxe, where you pay $3 more, but you get the undercoating. Yeah, you get the undercoating and you get that coat of, uh, uh, the extra coat of wax. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the water resistant thing That's sprayed right. on. Yeah. So it can just make water bead right off. And, yeah. Yeah. It never really works properly, but, you know, you pay for it anyways in hopes that it'll keep your car clean for a little bit longer. You feel good when you pay for it. Like, yeah, I'm getting something. I'm treating oh, yeah. myself in my car. And <laughs> then the first rain, you're like, ah. It's like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> I was taken. Yes, you were. Sure. Rube. <laughs> so they, those two studios, are working on this ultra deluxe edition of the Stanley Parable. Yes, which... When I played it, I mean, I don't play a lot of PC games, but this one caught my eye when it, around when it first came out, which I guess is probably zeroing in on about 10 years ago now. Jesus. But yeah, it, it was a mind blowing experience. It was like one of those early, oh, games can absolutely be art experiences that I had where I'm like, oh yeah, this is like, this is less a game and more of like, oh, crazy weird art experience. Like I, I, I don't know how to experience it like, or how to explain it properly, but if you've never played the Stanley Parable, I absolutely recommend giving it a shot. It's weird. Absolutely. it's uh, It struck me as being a game that kind of took some of those weird aside moments that you kind of get in, say, Half-Life 2 or Half-Life Episodes 1 or 2 with, uh, uh, who's that, like, weird man the, in black? The G-Man? The G-Man, who will just come and... Uh, appear out of nowhere yeah. and have like weird cinematics with Gordon Freeman. Yeah. 
It's like someone kind of took inspiration from that. Yeah. It's basically you're fighting against the narrator is what the game is. The narrator (laughs) wants the game to happen a certain way and you go against it and he gets mad and he tries to narrate you into different paths and there's a lot of different endings. I mean, for a game that, you know, when you play the happy path is over, I think in a minute and a half, I think I played, I think I put eight or nine hours into it when it originally came out. There was also some endings that I just had to play through just to show other people as well and just be like, look at how ridiculous this is. And Haha, isn't that funny? Like, look, look what they're doing here. Like, it's so weird. But yeah, it it's a game from like 10 years ago. So obviously if they wanted to re-release it, they'd want to make it look a little bit better and be with more modern technology. And apparently they have other ideas for more endings and more different weird things you can do. Apparently one of the problems is they just keep having ideas of what to throw into this ultra deluxe edition. Yeah. And I, I can't really blame them for, I guess, scope creep or mission creep because the idea is to make an ultra deluxe edition. So that idea and that premise kind of allows for throwing literally everything at this. Yeah. It is frustrating as someone that wants to get this game on a more modern console though, but you know, it is what it is, I suppose. And, uh, I don't know. That's just my default thing to say now, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of, I hate myself for saying it. It is what it is thing, but you it, know. Well, you are simply hearkening back to uh, one of the great philosophers of our uh, modern time, the late, great Kimbo Slice. Yes. It's uh, just one of those dumb, I know it's, I know people just kind of say it now and it's one of those like cringeworthy things that people don't like when people say, but I'm not from that school. I'm from just like the school of watching a ridiculous interview from Kimbo Slice several years ago now. 15 years 15 ago? 15 years ago. Yeah, we're going back yeah. to like old MMA fighters. The the early uh, popularization of MMA. Yeah, so Kimbo Slice was like a bare-knuckle backyard boxer who got famous in the early days of the internet mm-hmm. on like, I think it was like some backyard fist fights website or something where, you know, he was basically this menacing dude who would just beat up people and then as a sideshow kind of got brought into the UFC. And then, you know, there was some interview with him (laughs) leading up to this one fight. And like, he said something like they were asking him something. And then his whole thing was like, blah, blah, blah. It is what it is. That's what's up. It was, it was even before he was in UFC. It was uh, when CBS was airing a fight card from the elite XC fight promotion. He, the main event was supposed to be him and Ken Shamrock. Right, but, but then Shamrock had to drop out, and then at the last minute, basically, and then he, they brought in Seth... Seth Petruzzelli, Petruzzelli who yes. at that point was just a ham and egger. Yeah. Uh, and he ended up knocking out Kimbo Slice in the main event. In the first round? Like yes. Like a minute in? Yes. And just completely upset the apple cart of, in theory, what every programming director was hoping would happen, and whatnot, but... Kimbo Slice was a character. Yeah. Also, he had a ridiculous beard and a big gold fist on a chain around yeah. his neck. Yep. Very noticeable and distinct character. But yeah. that was one of the greatest promos I've ever seen. So uh, <laughs> this game, the Stanley Parable Ultra Deluxe Edition, apparently st- had work that uh, started on it back in 2018. It was due to launch in 2019. Then it was delayed to 2020. Now it's delayed to, again to 2021. Um and COVID's, again, also being cited for one of the reasons, 
with uh, uh, Davey Warden, uh, Redden of Crows, 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 saying on Twitter, quote, honestly, there was just no way to plan for the huge changes in schedule that COVID has introduced. And at the same time, the scope of the game has expanded as we keep getting really cool ideas to add. I hope it feels worth it in the end. Uh, we've been reviewing the work that's completed, and I actually think this game is going to be effing sick. Uh, Crows, Crows, Crows have been uh, doing an amazing job, and I think fans of the original game are going to be really pleasantly surprised. And at least Reddit is working with them. Like, I'd be concerned if, like, this remake company was just kind of going off on their own with their new ideas. Because it's like, well, the charm of the original game was it was sort of like the vision of Reddit. He had his own, like, he wrote everything and kind of did everything. It was like one of those one-man show kind of things where he just hired a voice actor and whatever. And I, I want to say he actually just used stock assets from Half-Life 2 for the using the creation tools and stuff. But anyways, the fact that he's involved in the decision-making process and coming up with these crazy ideas is exciting. It should be exciting for everyone out there. Uh, and what crazy new ideas are being thought of? Considering Stanley Parable is a crazy game already. Yes. It's, it's so a, what further crazy is being added that did not exist originally in the game? No idea. I, <laughs> we I mean, shall see come 2021. Yes. Uh, but another very, very well received, very, uh, well reviewed, uh, commercial success indie game that, uh, came out years ago, but is in line to get an anniversary edition next year is Braid. Uh, the time manipulating indie game that was, uh, came out for PC and consoles. Uh, oh god, old consoles too. I believe I have it on my Xbox 360? I don't know. I have over 100 games downloaded onto it, so I... It's easy to lose track. I certainly do. It's the same and thing I, of course, my... play a, a small fraction of it. Yeah, it's the same thing with my PlayStation library. Like, I don't remember how many games I had in my PlayStation 3, but it doesn't really matter because I'm I have PlayStation 4 now, and I have over 100 games in that library as well. So it's like, well, huh. It just never ends. Yeah. But Braid, good chance you've played it. Uh, the classic game from Jonathan Blow. Uh, it is going to be getting an anniversary edition that is slated to come out next year. This isn't any sort of delay. This is just the the initial announcement of it that it's going to be coming out, or slated, I should say, to be coming out next year on PC and consoles uh, regarding this project. Uh, original designer Jonathan Blow said, quote, back when I was originally working on Braid, even when it was a simple project with ugly programmer art and looked nothing like a respectable game, I knew that one of the primary goals of this project was to treat video games as a medium with serious artistic potential. That potential involves longevity. Many great works of painting, sculpture, and architecture have lasted for centuries and inspired generations of people. Video games weren't like that back then and still mostly aren't today. And I knew I couldn't predict what would be necessary to keep the game alive and available many decades into the future, but I knew it was part of the project and that I would try my best. So, uh, Jonathan Blow is working on this anniversary edition alongside original artist David Hellman. They are going to be redoing the art, uh, not completely redoing it, but kind of bringing it up to today's standards and perhaps more in line with what they would like it to be. Now that the technology is there and they just have more tools available to them, they are basically better developers now than they were 10 years ago. Better developers, better artists. If you haven't improved in the last however long since you released a project, what the Sam Hell's wrong with you, 
but you also have to get the game up to a certain standard so it can look good on modern screens and modern monitors. HD was a standard, you know, back then, but now we're looking at 4K monitors and devices. We're not far off from 8K monitors and devices. Yeah. It's true. Like, we've reached that point now where, like, visual, like, the monitors are going to be getting better and better, and, yeah, before it's imperceptible between a monitor and a window, and once it's at that point, it'll be like, oh, crap, what do we do with some of these old games? But it's a very interesting point that he makes about, like, you know, other classic art being able to be preserved like that, but video games don't really get that in the same regard, or haven't really got that in the same regard up until somewhat recently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess I'm all on board for people wanting to keep something like this alive, which is cool. Certainly, and uh, any sort of game preservation is uh, A-OK in my books. Uh, Also, of course, there's going to be the usual bells and whistles. It's going to look great. They're going to flesh out some things that maybe they didn't have a chance to with the original game. The sound and music are going to be tweaked and upgraded uh, where Jonathan Blow and others see fit. But the game will have uh, div- uh, commentary to it. And this is something that Jonathan Blow calls, quote, the craziest, most in-depth commentary ever put into a video game, end quote. I don't know what that all entails, let your imagination run wild with that, but... Well, he basically, he let, he starts to explain that you can follow, I quote, you can follow particular threads of commentary spatially through wormholes that go from level to level to see examples of particular concepts, and there's lots of markups so we can circle stuff on the screen, point arrows at whatever visual detail we're talking about, show diagrams, playback recordings of gameplay to show what happens if you try doing this or that in a particular level, and many other capabilities. So... Maybe not something you want to turn on if you've never beat the game. <laughs> so your first playthrough, <laughs> director's edition, director's cut, full commentary. It's like, I have no idea what's going on. The game will take four days to complete. <laughs> four straight days because everything is slowed down, paused, and thoroughly explained. Oh, man. So maybe not your first time. But yeah. if you are a devotee of Braid... Play it through once, uh, see all the art that has been redone, uh, reamped, perhaps made anew for this anniversary edition that is slated to come out in 2021. And of course, the, if you don't like new art, you can always toggle it on and off with the original art. Like most of these remakes have a button to let you do that, which is nice. And very nice. So, yeah, look forward to that. We will uh, give more details on a specific release window once they are released. Right now, this was just the announcement that the project is underway. But uh, that is for the future. I believe at this juncture, we should probably take some minutes to discuss some things that are old, have already come out, and are of a bygone age. Yes, dear friends, it is time for the... I almost said the ludicrous leadoff. No, no. you're... You're an hour and a bit late for that. The Blast from the Past, which last week I uh, started the show by uh, joking about the Blast from the Past, Blast from the Past being the first thing. Of course, now it's is uh, the last thing. I'm all mixed up because that's what this year has done to me. Well, I'm not the only one because time is a flat circle, imperceptible when you look at it from the edge. So we have two items in our Blast from the Past this week. One is a movie. One is a TV show. No video games, which you might think is a bit odd, considering we are a video game podcast, but 
the movie was based on a video game, so that's something. I certainly think that's points in our favor. Uh, and the TV series felt like a video game. It did. Very much did. So uh, which of the two would you like to start with this week? Well, we can probably start with the uh, the the TV series. All right. The TV series is our first stop backwards in time on the old time train. It takes us back to August 23rd of the year 2000. For that was a year that Conan O'Brien did some great bits on The Late Show. Uh, but also this was the uh, day and time and year that Comedy Central aired the first episode of BattleBots, yeah. the robot fighting series that, uh, I mean, it was happening as an underground thing in California, specifically San Francisco, for a couple of years before that, but this was the first time it was really shown and given any sort of mainstream publicity, any sort of mainstream notoriety as a half-hour series on Comedy Central on a weekly basis, and brought robot fighting and robot combat mechanics to a wider mainstream audience. And I, as a teenage boy, loved every minute of it. Oh, yeah, it was awesome. But I also seem to remember BattleBots being just one of a few different robot battling shows as well. Like, I think there was Robot Wars was, I think, the first one that I remember seeing. And BattleBots, I think, came after. Did come after. And uh, I believe TLC the cable yeah. network in the States when they were still trying to be the learning channel. Yeah, instead of just exploitation TV. Yeah. Uh, well, if you live long enough, you eventually become the villain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they had a show, I believe, called Robotica. Yeah, that's right. I think that was the one hosted by, what, Ahmet Zappa? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he was the bald Zappa, right? Yeah. Yes. So, yes, him. Uh, that one was, uh, I believe, more direct challenges. I don't think it was specific bot on bot combat i think no, they were they had to go through like it was basically almost like nickelodeon gut style courses and stuff that the robots had to go through like crazy like like uh obstacle courses and things like that from what i remember yes uh, that, it strikes me as being that way too and i recall there being like a tug of war at times too yeah uh perhaps some sort of sumo battle on that show uh and rob the thing is, these three robot shows kind of came out around the same time. You might think, oh, they're all kind of samey because they're all based around robots and people controlling robots. No, actually, they were very different concepts. They were very different concepts, but, like, the only samey thing was the fact that it was all centered around robots because robots are cool. They are cool. I mean... And you can do literally anything with them. Yeah. As much as your engineering and creative uh, abilities allow for. And Robot Wars was, uh, I believe, started in Britain, had an American offshoot, but uh, on Robot Wars, you would be uh, taking on the house robots that were, of course, done in ridiculous fashion, That uh, and they would be there, kind of like the gladiators from American Gladiators. Yeah, exactly. And you, your robots would be engaging in different challenges, like soccer and whatnot, and you'd have to work around them. But BattleBots was the only one that had direct robot-on-robot violence. Yeah. And goddamn, was it fantastic. It was fantastic. And this is sort of like, this show also struck, like, it stood out in my head as being like the first time I saw Bill Nye in not a children's show context. That's true. Because this was, like, this was more like, I think meant more for adults. Because, like, you know, like, late teenager, almost 18 years old when this came out. Like, oh, 16, I guess, personally. Um, 
you as well, I guess. <laughs> We're the same age. <laughs> Fifteen and a half. Fifteen and a half. So, yeah, it was like, when this came out, it was just sort of like, yeah, like, it was different. It, it wasn't like a kid's show, but Bill Nye was one of the hosts. Like, he, he was sort of, like, brought in as, like, you know, the science. He was still Bill Nye, the science guy. Mm-hmm. But just kind of, like, explaining, like, trying to explain in Bill Nye-type way of, like, it was, like, like this weird, like, oh, it's a bunch of crazy stuff. Like, robots are going to fight each other. Bill, why don't you explain, like, this this scientific concept to us, like, we're all five. This <laughs> is like, okay, so here's a fulcrum, and the fulcrum works like this, and it does this, and blah, blah, blah. And basically, you can flip this guy over and mess him up kind of thing. It's like, whoa, Bill Nye is like, there's some sass to him. I didn't know that was there. Which was an awesome element. Like, the whole oeuvre of the original BattleBot series was almost acknowledging that it was a silly concept and it had fun with it. Yeah. Like, it was on Comedy Central, so it wasn't being done in any sort of serious way. The hosts, I believe, were comedians, or at least one was a comedian and the other was some sort of old sports broadcaster guy. And you had basically Playboy, Playboy, Playboy Playmates at times, different times, as your, like, host people in the pits going around and in interviewing people and teams after their matches, getting yeah. thoughts on it, uh, post game, pre game, whatever the case might have been. So it, like it was a very loose, very fun series. Oh, and also the battle box. We have to say the arena in which the bots would actually fight, uh, had a personality unto itself in that there was weapons all around the goddamn arena. Yeah. You had giant hammers in the corners. You had spikes all around the perimeter. He had saw blades that would come up from the floor. Yeah, pulverizers, spike strips, spinners, kill saws, pistons, ramrods, hellraisers, and screws. Yeah. Which are all the different names that I was reading through Wikipedia of all the different obstacles that the course itself had. Yeah. And, of course, there were weight classes, and <laughs> which you had to have. Uh, yeah. Some of the bots were just small and flipper-based. Some of them were just big and I'm going to bludgeon you to death. Some of them were ridiculous and artistic. I, I distinctly recall one of the heavyweight robots at the time just basically being a big snake-like creature that someone put a lot of time and effort and energy into. And, of course, it was useless in the in fighting. Yeah. But it just looked really impressive. But it was the entirely wrong venue for this artistic venue. Yeah, which was, you know, the case most of the time. It was. But, uh, I mean, it got popular. Uh, Jay Leno had it on its show, had it on The Tonight Show for, a, I believe, one or two exhibition fights and actually even had uh, a team commission uh, a robot uh, build in his honor. Yeah, with a big chin. Yeah, called Chin Killa. Yeah. That would participate in exhibition matches. Uh, a number of people who worked on Mythbusters actually came through this uh, BattleBots underground scene and popular scene as well. I believe Grant Imahara, uh, Adam Savage, Jamie Heineman all built bots for this as well. Uh, so this was a big thing. It lasted for about five seasons and then went away for a number of years. And it was only recently that it was brought back by ABC, I think in what, 2016? Uh, 2015. 2015. But then... Um, so it was brought back for, I think, one or two years. Yeah, it, well, it was brought back for two seasons by ABC. And then in 2018, Discovery Channel and Science picked up the show 
for seasons eight through present, uh, Discovery Channel did actually renew it to have, you know, a 10th season, but the coronavirus delayed everything. So it's not, it's supposed to happen. A 10th season is supposed to happen, but it's not clear when, but I haven't seen the show probably since the original run back in 2002 or three or whatever, when it ended 2002. So so I have seen some of the new episodes, and it's clear they have more of a budget. Oh, yeah. And they ramp up the uh, just the overall television production side. Alternatively, they they don't have more of a budget, but it's just easier to make stuff look good now. True, too. Because technology overall is better. Uh, true, too. So, and, and also just the cost of good equipment is has come down. Yeah, exactly. And, like, know-how is a lot easier to come by and just... Consumer electronics can do a lot more professional-looking stuff these days. They can. Uh, your announced team is different. Uh, Mike Goldberg, who his career has, for the past 20 years, really has been in uh, combat sports announcing. He's your main... Uh, no, uh, not Mike Goldberg. Uh, sorry. Kenny Florian. Kenny Florian is the your uh, color commentator, I believe. And Chris Rose. Chris Rose is your main play-by-play announcer. Sorry, I was confusing him with Mike Goldberg. Uh, Chris Rose is a uh, longtime sports commentator, football commentator. I believe he's done some hockey as well in his career. So uh, it's it's more of a made-for-TV product rather than the original series, which was really Comedy Central, sent some cameras down to this event that was happening anyway in San Francisco. Yeah. So I kind of prefer the original series for that kind of just kitsch factor. Like it. It didn't look as slick and smooth as the new one does. No, it felt more like just sort of like a, almost like a guerrilla style thing. Which is very much what the robot fighting scene was too. Yeah. DIY homebrew underground thing of this is what we're doing. So, and I respected for that, uh, enjoyed it for that. And, uh, anything that looked cool had hammers and would make bots just go flipping in the air. I loved. I still love all the series, but you know, the original battle bots. Awesome. Absolutely. So we shall go even further back in time for a few moments here and talk about the movie that I said was based on a video game, came out on August 18th, 1995, so it is 25 years old. Talking about the movie adaptation of Mortal Kombat. Which, um, if you've never seen it, and maybe you're don't have the nostalgia attached to old Mortal Kombat that some of us might have, you might not get any enjoyment out of this movie. That is entirely possible because this was uh, uh, made and released really during the early heyday of Mortal Kombat mania. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the second game had come out yet. Ooh, it might not have, or it may have been around the time that the second game was released. Because I believe the first and second games were basically one year apart from their major releases. But certainly... Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, according to Wikipedia, uh, even though the, the... Yeah, this one is mostly based around the events in Mortal Kombat 1, which was released in 1992. It did get a little bit of inspiration from, as well as incorporated a little bit of elements from the 1993 follow-up, Mortal Kombat 2. So, yes... Mortal Kombat 3 hadn't come out yet, but, no. uh, yeah. This, this drew inspiration from the first two Mortal Kombat games, which 
I think both of us played a fair amount of. Certainly. Way back in the day. At home, in arcades, wherever, at someone else's house, a friend's yeah. house, if we had the chance, we were playing this game as most of the game playing kids were doing at that time. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was always, it, like, no one ever, like, this is the one weird instance where, like, you all, you wanted your friend to have a different system. Like, if you had Super Nintendo, you wanted your friend to have the Sega because, well, for the first game, obviously, like, everyone knows that, you know, the Sega had blood and Nintendo didn't. But for the second game, the fatalities were slightly different, even. Ever so slightly. Like, the pit fatality, I think, on the Sega had, like, this whole, like, different view that it went to, like, an overhead, like... Oh, so, that's right, too. Yeah, whereas that didn't happen on the Super Nintendo. It was like, flat from the side still. But anyways, the movie itself is, um, I am going to go out on a limb and say it's still a fun movie to watch. It's super cheesy. Like, it's not what I would call a good movie, but it's fun. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Um, and as far as movie adaptations of video games from the 90s go, and perhaps even later, uh, it's actually one of the better adaptations of a game to a movie. Because there was a lot of trash. Uh, you might not know this, but there was a Double Dragon movie released in the 90s. Oh, yeah. There was also a terrible Dungeons & Dragons movie. There was a really bad... Like, there was a... In the early to mid-90s, video games... And comic books were often, like, they were still a source, like, these things were, it's not a new thing that, like, comic books are, and video games and stuff are, like, a source of, you know, movies for them to be drawing inspiration from. It's sort of always been a thing, but it's a recent thing for them to be good. Yes, it is. Because (laughs) a lot of times... Prior to the late 90s, early 2000s, and even after that, uh, people would be making, writing, and directing these movies based on source material they weren't terribly familiar with or didn't have any sort of passion or reverence for. Uh, I mean, there was a Captain America movie done in, I believe, the late 80s, if not early 90s, that was right, widely regarded as being god-awful and atrocious to the character. Yeah. Of course, we've seen how Captain Captain America has been treated in recent times by people who know and actually appreciate the character. Yeah, exactly. So there is a new Mortal Kombat movie in the works. I believe filming is slated to begin in the next couple of weeks with a planned release of 2021, late 2021 or early 2022. But nevertheless, nothing will capture that certain, you know, 90s, uh, chic, that 90s kitsch factor of this original Mortal Kombat movie. For a lot of different reasons. One, it basically was a tourist video for Thailand. Yep, it was a very much a tourist video for Thailand. But also, the actors that were in it, like, the fact that this movie got an actual theatrical release is kind of mind-blowing. Because you don't really see, well, I mean, I guess you do see that still, but not to the degree that this one had a marketing budget behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, this mar- this movie had a pretty big marketing budget. And there was basically no A-list actors in this movie. None whatsoever. Like, I mean, the closest thing to an A-list actor would have been Christopher Lambert, who played Raiden. Who, and he was in the Highlander series. Yeah, he was, you know, 
he's a French guy that was playing in a Scottish, you know, if you've never seen Highlander, whatever, he's, a, he's one of the Highlanders. And for some reason, he's just playing, like, he has that French accent that he tries to hide super bad. And he's like, he's playing the God of Thunder, and he is Raiden. And that's how he talks, and everything is like this. And it's like, because you're trying not to do your French accent, but it's slipping through just a little <laughs> bit. It's not as bad as Jean-Claude Van Damme in the Street Fighter movie. <laughs> Going to kick M. Bison ass. <laughs> it's like, you have, you're an American in this movie? You're supposed to be Colonel Guile in the American army? Really? And they got a Belgian? It's like they got a Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> like, oh, that's a, that's as American as Apple Pie. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Alpha Pie a la mode. But yeah, I mean, I guess like after Christopher Lambert, the next biggest name would have been Robin Shu, who I, he had a little bit of a moment back in the mid nineties with between this and Beverly Hills Ninja, mm-hmm. but I haven't really seen him in anything recently. And you didn't really see him in much before this either. No, but like he had a little bit of a, you know, charisma and star power in this movie as Liu Kang, and, but then a lot of the other actors, I don't know, like, they gave, like, if you ever, if you watched a lot of B-movies like I did, you notice that, like, a lot of old, like, 1980s slasher movies and stuff had, like, actors basically just read the lines and, like, had, like, intense deliveries about things. That's what most of the actors were like in this movie. It was like they were from the cut from the same cloth of people who were in like bad slasher movies. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if that's wrong of me to say. No, I like there are elements of this that feel like B movie. Oh yeah, because the kind of the idea is a, it's a B movie idea, like you know, just taken from a video game instead of some cheap script that was bought by some studio. Like you have these. Martial arts fighter. Like, it's a B-movie concept for a martial arts movie. Like, these fighters, they're fighting in this tournament, and then they get sucked to another dimension, and they have to fight to defend Earth. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's been done as a B-movie before. And in this, because you have people, because the games were new, they may not be terribly familiar with the characters they're portraying and the source material they are drawn from, or just don't really care about the characters, but... Kano was very much like a grit your teeth and just say the lines intensely kind of character. Uh, Jax as well. Yep, but maybe none more so than Shang Tsung. Yes. Or Johnny Cage. Johnny Cage very much feels like a, uh, I don't quite know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to try and be charismatic. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's, if you're familiar with the lore of Mortal Kombat, this movie is probably worth watching just for how cheesy it is. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, I don't know if I can recommend this movie. I mean, it's very much of the moment. Oh, yeah. Like, this is very much, like, you look at this and you're like, yeah, this is what the 90s was like. This is the 90s. This movie is the 90s. Very much so the 90s. Like, you get a very similar feel from watching, like, Demolition Man or, you know, thi- like, Movies of, like, this similar vintage, you know, like, yeah, it's, that's all I can really say to explain it. I know I get what you're, uh, you're laying down there, and, uh, it's, 
it's worth a watch uh, for posterity, for nostalgia. Uh, it's a movie that it's not bad. It's not great, but it's not bad. I'd also like to point it's watchable. out that you know, as as a as a kid that was like interested in kind of heavy metal and stuff, the soundtrack was always kind of weird and interesting to me. Okay, because the official soundtrack, um, if you look on the Wikipedia page for it, the genres: EDM, electronica, techno, industrial rock, industrial metal, death metal, groove metal. It's a lot of metal. Yeah, so it, it's like. It's pretty much half like hard electronica, like, you know, going into like industrial kind of things like psychosonic and KMFDM and like orbital and sister machine gun and stuff. But then weirdly enough, there's also like George Clinton and George Clinton featuring Buckethead and stuff on a couple of songs. But then you have like Fear Factory, Napalm Death, Typo Negative, GZR, like, all of these guys on there as well. So it's like, oh, huh. Because I remember when I was watching it, I'm like, like I watched it a few years later, like, you know, after whatever, like amassing a bit of a music collection of my own. Because like when this came out, I was like 11. So it's like, I didn't really have a much of a music collection. But like a few years later, I'm like, wait a minute, that's a Fear Factory song. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the? It's like, that's, that sounds like Napalm Death. It's like when Goro walks out and a bunch of grindcore is playing. It's like, oh, huh. <laughs> Weird. And that's not really something you see in mainstream movies anymore. That's true. I uh, mean, Ace Ventura too. Yeah, they had Cannibal Corpse. Like, <laughs> terrible movie aged so badly, like insanely transphobic. Like, I wouldn't really recommend going back and watching Ace Ventura. It, it, it's not, history has not been kind to that movie. It was definitely on the wrong side of things. But that one weird moment when, like, he walks into, like, the death metal club and Cannibal Corpse is on stage playing Hammer Smashed Face. Like, oh, huh? This is a kid's it's a comedy movie oriented at children? <laughs> what? <laughs> Anyways, the 90s were weird. 90s were weird. Uh, I mean, this uh, being a weird B-movie still managed to work in you know, some classic moments from the game. Like we saw Scorpion, uh, using his, uh, chain get over here move. Uh, we see Sub-Zero in there. The movie's got Goro, uh, which I believe, I don't remember how they did Goro back then. If it was CG animation or claymation animation, doesn't really matter. We see Goro represented on a live action screen. Uh, Johnny Cage does his ball breaker actually to Goro. Uh, so there's some classic moments, Raiden in the flesh, shooting off lightning, even though it's a f- Frenchman playing the God of Thunder, which is still weird to say to this day. Nevertheless, it's a thing that existed in the nineties. And even th- as you went through all those names on the soundtrack, this movie still had, and it was the cause of just that classic, uh, uh, Mortal Kombat techno piece. That was like the main theme to the entire movie. Uh, where the, you know, guy cries Mortal Kombat and just the 90s, uh, EDM behind it or electronica as it was back then. Uh, that is, I'm sure, still used and still synonymous with the movie to this day. And I believe has become one of those just, uh, amp up the crowd type, uh, arena rock or arena anthems, particularly in hockey after a fight or during a fight. Yep. So 
And then, then of course, the, or no, was this after the Immortals released their Mortal Kombat album? I think around the same time. Around the same time. Like, they, they made the song, but then, which was never in the games, by the way, which people always think, oh, that's the theme from the games. No, it wasn't. It's the theme from the movie. It was the theme from the movie. Well, I think they might have just made it being inspired by the games, and then the movie used it as well, but it was the theme in the movie. Mm -hmm. Not in the games, but then, yeah, they made this whole other album, which we've talked about years ago on this program anyway, but... If you can find that album as well, it might it might be on like the streaming services and stuff. Hilarious, not a good album, but hilarious, at least for a single listen. Certainly, catchy at points. Yeah, Sad. especially Sub Zero, yeah, the Sub Zero song, <laughs> or Test Your Might. <laughs> Anyways, so some classic elements to uh, a, an okay movie. Uh, as far as game adaptations or movie adaptations of video games from the 90s went, there yeah. was certainly much worse stuff out there and has still been much worse stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the Uwe Boll collection. <laughs> yes, if you have to. If you're <laughs> chained down and being tortured. Whatever the situation is, hopefully that's not for you and you have agency and movement still afforded to you and are able to choose to watch Mortal Kombat if you do, let us know your thoughts on it. How has it aged? Or perhaps even BattleBots. Uh, did you watch it back then? Do you watch it now? Uh, do you watch it now after watching it back then? Let us know your thoughts on both of those. The ways you can do that is by email. You can send it to info at thearcadeshow.com or you can hit us up through the social medias. We are on Twitter at The Arcade Show and on Facebook. Even though we have maligned it greatly through the course of this show, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. And if you haven't done so already, you are wrong for do not doing so, but this is your chance to rectify that. You can subscribe to this podcast on both iTunes and the Google Play Podcast Store. We have direct links to our pages on both of those platforms located on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So until uh, next time, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.